Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, as we have the great privilege of continuing to study this wonderful letter together each Lord's Day. I know we were in the Psalms last Lord's Day, but our sermon series as we're working through and now to the final chapter of Hebrews. This is going a few weeks back, but this would be considered part two of verses one through six. With your Bibles open, Hebrews chapter 13, I actually want to begin reading in verse 28 of the previous chapter. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to make note, verses 5 and 6. God has said something, and we respond by saying something. It's really beautiful, and this is the foundation that actually helps us understand how we as people in great need of help could actually fulfill living a life, sacrifices pleasing to God, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ, loving them well, living a life that would bring glory and honor to our God in the midst of struggles and trials and difficulties. What he has said and how we respond kind of fills in the gap. If you want to think about motivation or fuel to live out a life that would actually be pleasing to God, it is rooted and grounded in what he has said. And once we understand that and it has taken root in our hearts and minds, we can confidently then say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Before we get there, though, I want us to begin by thinking about a book written by a Puritan many, many years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He argues that contentment is not opposed to weary Christians offering a heavenward lament or saying something like, God, I wish there was some other way. He's saying that 
that lament, that crying out to God, God, is there any other way, is not opposed to understanding Christian contentment. The Bible commends desire in its proper place. It's okay to desire something in your life. So for example, there are women in the Bible like Sarah and Hannah who desire to have a child. That desire is a good desire. Or you start to read through the Song of Solomon and we see that there is a desire for sexual intimacy and that desire, a man for a woman, a woman for a man in the context of marriage is a good desire. The book of Proverbs encourages us to, to plan and to work hard so that we might improve our lot in this life. And that desire to work hard and to experience the fruit of that labor is not a bad desire. So it is not automatically wrong to have those desires, but the Bible does say that our problem lies and when we desire the wrong things or desire good things the wrong way. So to kind of help us think about this a little bit more, I want to take us to the 10th commandment of God found in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I want you to hear it. The 10 commandments, this is the last one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Another Puritan, John Owen, once said, covetousness is an inordinate desire to enjoy more than what we have or desire to have more than God is pleased to give us. So really, this covetousness, this covenant, covenant, uh, coveting things that, that God says you shall not covet, this can have a much broader application to our lives. It really is an expression of discontent. So if the rare jewel of Christian contentment written by Jeremiah Burroughs is to help us understand that there actually can be contentment found in God. Coveting is an expression of discontentment. When we covet, this is what we're saying. We don't believe that God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us. Coveting says, I can't live without that person, place, or possession. And according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, this is what it says by the Apostle Paul, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So coveting, or coveting things that are not yours but someone else's actually at the root is a form of idolatry. And I want us to be able to see from God's word what 
that actually means when things that you don't have but desire to have start to rise to the place of worship. If you've ever wondered, well, the 10th commandment says don't want things that aren't yours. Okay, I can track with that. But then the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, actually says that when you covet, you are actually worshiping something other than God. What's going on there? And what the Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand and what the 10th commandment is actually trying to help us understand is that this is a heart issue. When you are desiring things in an inordinate way or measure that actually reveals that you would rather have that thing or person much more than even being satisfied with God, pleased with what he has given you. So really, the call to obey the 10th commandment is an obedience that is really a matter of the heart that's being exposed. Discontentment is the soil in which sinful behaviors grow. For some of us, you're going, okay, I'm thinking about discontentment in my own life, and it doesn't seem like a a really big deal. For most of us, it means little more than we wish we just had more. Is that really a bad thing? And in our complaining, we're just not experiencing all that we believe this life has to offer. And really, what I want us to see and what this passage, I believe, reveals is discontentment argues a lack of confidence in the care of our Heavenly Father to provide the things which we think we really need. Do you trust God? Our lives in these first six verses reveal whether or not we truly trust God. When it comes to caring for those around you, the first few verses, the first three, really emphasize living a life open-handed towards your brothers and sisters in need. A good way to really diagnose whether or not you're trusting God is, are your hands closed tight around your possessions and time and resources? Or if you kind of take a a snapshot of what's going on in your life, does it reveal an open-handed lifestyle? Some just say, well, he's just kind of selfish or greedy. And you could really kind of press into that and realize that is a lack of trust. And when we look at coveting, that actually is revealing that there are idols of the heart. You know, Calvin referred to our hearts as a, as a human idol factory, continually churning up things that we gravitate towards, begin to long for, our affections are stirred, and we're actually, actually worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And all of this actually manifests itself on the ground in our lives when it comes to relationships and how how we handle what God has given us. And so if you're thinking, man, this just isn't really applicable, there is great application to really um, laying our hearts bare, God's word, revealing to us what's going on inside of us because it directly impacts the way in which we treat others. 
The reason why I drove us back to chapter 12, verse 28, I want you to hear it again. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why I wanted us to go there again is because Worship is much more than just this Sunday gathering, which is the pinnacle of our Christian experience, the Lord's Day, this gathering together. But, but the Bible describes worship as a, a, a all of life. What, what, what is coming out of our mouths when we're interacting with our spouse and our children? What how we respond in the workplace with responsibilities given to us and and maybe employees or an employer that is difficult to deal with, how we manage our time and resources comprehensively, I want us to understand our life is to be an acceptable act of worship before God with reverence and awe. So this affects our relationships. This affects our marriage. This affects how we deal with money. All of that is included in these first six verses. And so, let us begin in verse four. So we've already had an opportunity to look at the first three verses and take a moment to look at verse four and, and spend some time thinking about marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If you're familiar with Matt Walsh, he produced a, a documentary, starred in it, with the title, What is a Woman? And man, I would say just 10 years ago, you would think, what is the relevance, a need for a documentary like that? And you watch that documentary and it reveals that our culture is completely twisted and thwarted in understanding the basic concepts of what God has created and made and says it is good. Two genders, male, female. And I was thinking about this. We will sometimes as believers just kind of gloss over, okay, there's a passage talking about marriage. It should be held in honor and the marriage bed should be undefiled and think we assume, of course, duh, we all know the importance of marriage, what it is. But just as that documentary revealed, you could just pose this question to your friends, to your classmates, those who you work with, what is marriage? And you would hear, I'm sure, all different definitions according to what seems right to their eyes. We are given from God's word clearly the definition of marriage. He has ordained this institution between one man and one woman coming together in a one flesh union, making a covenant before God and the people witnessing what is actually happening in this relationship. So the Bible teaches that marriage is valuable, precious, that held in honor. This is, this is something that God has made and is very good. The Bible also teaches sexual morality in all of its aspects and manifestations, and it comes down to one central thing. Sex belongs in marriage and nowhere else. God makes it very clear. 
But we need to actually hear that clarity again and again because we are bombarded with falsities and ideas of what true enjoyment and true excitement, where it's found in relationships, in promiscuity, in, in sexual immorality, in adultery. There are temptations being thrown at us from everything we watch and hear forming what really is the most satisfying pursuit of sexual intimacy. Al Mohler says this, this is a radical statement to make in today's world, but it's deeply biblical. Scripture recognizes sex within marriage as something good and worthy of celebration. If we had a checklist of sexual morality, sex within marriage between one man and one woman would be on the yes list but everything else would be on the no list because every form of sex outside of marriage subverts and dishonors what God has made holy. Any form of sex outside of the marriage covenant, including adultery, is an affront to God's gift of marriage and is therefore deserving of God's judgment. And we see that in the passage. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Because God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman, to stay between one man and one woman, which would mean that the marriage bed is not defiled, it illustrates his exclusive, that's a word that we do not like to hear in our culture, exclusive covenant love for his people. That is what marriage between one man and one woman for life on this earth displays and he will jealously defend its precious purity. Now, even within the evangelical landscape, we hear things like Andy Stanley's church in Atlanta several weeks ago hosting a conference called Un The Unconditional Conference. And then just a week after that conference, he preached a sermon basically in defense of doing so. And this conference was for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking for different ways to, to, to support and minister to these parents and their children. And he spoke of same-sex attracted believers who practice sexual celibacy. And then he went on to say, but for many, that is not sustainable. And so they choose a same-sex marriage. Not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible as we do. They chose to marry for the very same reasons many of us do. Love, companionship, and family. In his message, there is no call to repentance. There is no call to holiness. There is no call to flee from sexual immorality and obey Christ. Andy Stanley presented the idea that sinners can find refuge in a, in, in a same-sex marriage because obedience to Scripture and a biblical understanding of sexuality is not sustainable. I want you to think about that in, in relation to what, what we've said thus far. Inordinate desires for something that is not yours, nor should you have. That's discontentment. That is 
covetousness. This, this type of preaching or teaching, false teaching, that these people longed for something that the Bible says they can't have, this is how we're going to justify it. This is just not sustainable. That should be screaming to us like, like sirens going off. Something is out of joint. Something's out of whack here. If you are justifying sinful behavior because the other way just isn't sustainable. Everything we've said about do you trust God? Do you rely upon him and his ways just falls apart and and who is elevated in these situations? Is God in his holiness and righteousness put on display as right, good, and just? Or is man beginning to be elevated as my needs, what is right for me, what is sustainable in my life that leads the trajectory of living? This all really does help us look at verse 4 and go, do we hold marriage as honorable and do we keep the marriage bed undefiled and do we believe that God will actually judge the sexually immoral and adulterous sexual immorality and adultery really for all who are reading encompasses everybody in their life who may deal with any form of sexual temptation leading to sexual sin if you are single, if you are married, when you see sexual immorality and adultery, it is covering all sexual temptation. When you give way and walk in a manner that is not pleasing to God and say, abstaining is not sustainable, therefore I need and I will get, you need to understand that this is sin that will be judged by God. It actually matters. Our God is a consuming fire. I want you to hear this from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It does not end there. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The beauty of the gospel, because many of us are sitting in this room going, I'm on that list. The whole affront to, to Andy Stanley's ministry that he calls a ministry and what he is proclaiming as they seek this because it's not sustainable, he is actually missing the reality of who you once were and then who you now are in Christ. And the power that is at work in you in Christ to overcome those temptations. That there actually is a washing that has taken place. You are a new creation. You once were doing these things. And that's maybe part of your identity in the past. But in Christ, you have been washed. 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself going, I was once there, this is not a guilt trip. This is a joyful call to live in a new manner of life because that is not who you are now. And so I, I cringe and my heart is broken for all the people who are led astray by this therapeutic preaching and counseling saying, because it's so hard and not sustainable, I now commend this type of lifestyle. That is antithetical to the power of the gospel and the transformation that takes place by Christ's work on the cross. So our belief about marriage and the choices we make in regards to honoring it as God defined it and not defiling it actually displays our love for our brothers and sisters. This is where it still ties into the very first verse. Let brotherly love continue. Did you know that the way that you handle marriage, whether you're single or married, single, you understand that anything that has to do with sexual intimacy, it waits until the marriage bed. For those in marriage, you're saying, I will not look outside of this marriage for any kind of sexual satisfaction. God has blessed me with this union. It stays here. All of those decisions actually testify and minister to those around you. Now, can there still be forgiveness because of the work of Christ? Yes and amen. But how we live and handle marriage, holding it in honor, and the marriage bed actually has implications to displaying our love for one another. When we sin, it has effects on our brothers and sisters. For true love for one another, it would cause us, propel us to live and pursue holiness. And then for the husbands in the room thinking about marriage, this question was posed this week online, and I think it's good for all of us to, to think about even now. Husbands, do you live in such a way that your wife knows that she is more important to you than any other human relationship that you have? It is a testimony to those watching if we love our brides the way Christ loves the church, that's what we're called to, to display, to strive for. Do we do that in our own strength? By no means. God in his grace empowers us by the Holy Spirit to even give a, glimmer of, a glimpse of the great love that Christ has for his church. Husbands, do you live in such a way that your wife knows that she is, the, she is more important to you than any other human relationship that you have. And then we see the next exhortation. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This contentment goes beyond just our, our view of money. It goes into our relationships, our marriage, uh, our, our friendships, but here specifically looking at it in light of keeping your life free from the love of money. If you are able to live in contentment with what you have, it means that you are free from the love of money. Now, when we start to talk about money, 
you, you hear sermons, talks that go off in all different directions of how to view money. And we want to be rooted in God's word and see very clearly that it is the, the love of money, the love of it, that is the beginnings of, of much evil. There is, there is this passion to pursue and to have, even if it is be above and beyond what God has been pleased to give you. Now, when we talk about money, I think this is important. Contentment is not incompatible with honest effort to enlarge the provision of earthly things for ourselves and for those dependent upon us. God has given us six days to work, and then on the seventh is the Lord's day to rest. We are to be industrious and so idleness does not equate contentment, equate to I'm just content, so I'm lazy. Not at all. There is a hardworking pursuit of, of, of production unto the glory of God that may actually manifest in a, in a harvest of a lot of money coming your way. That is different than what the author is striving at here to help us understand that there is contentment when the love of money is freed from your life. But many love money for how it makes you feel. Many love money for what it can get you. Many love money for how it makes you look in the eyes of others. Many love money for its power. Many love money because you believe it proves that God really loves you. Many love money for what it can, it can buy you or even buy you out of. Love of money looks for security in something that cannot ultimately provide it. This is that slippery slope where you start to think, okay, I'm, I'm just doing this pursuit, this desire, this uh, entrepreneurial spirit, whatever it is, to provide for my family and we need to just know that money is littered, the, the discussion, the topic of it all throughout Scripture because it can be such a temptation to become what? An idol. When you look at others, I was looking at another man's profile who is uh, a pastor who I, I look up to and aspire, and it's his wife standing in their front lawn up in the Midwest with just this gorgeous front yard, not the wife, gorgeous front yard, beautiful house, manicured. I look out in my front yard and realize I've really dropped the ball on the landscaping and things of that nature. But so quickly, I love this man. It's Joel Beakey, if you want to know. His wife's very much older, so it's not anything weird like that. <laughs> but I'm looking at him, and before I know it, what could be like rejoicing in what God has given him, man, Satan can grab hold and start tempting to say, don't you want that? Don't you think you need that also? And so quickly, our hearts can be grabbed and held captive to, to things instead of him, the one who has given every good and perfect gift that comes from above. So quickly, we need to be on guard and understanding that the love of money is the root of all evil. It really is. When it's consuming you, it's all you care about. And again, when you look at your finances, you think about the tithes and offerings. 
God is the one who, who created a people and then asked them to give to him. Give unto the Lord. Does God need us to give to him? He is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He does not need anything from us. And yet he has orchestrated in such a way to help us be generous givers because everything that we have has been given from him. And he wants us to have this relationship and this understanding that we need him, we're dependent upon him, and again, it is an open-handedness towards him, and that is displayed in these first six verses. Do we care for those? Are we hospitable? Do we share with those in need? Or are we so consumed with the love of things? And our, checkbook, our checkbooks would really actually reflect our checking account. Not many have checkbooks anymore. Will actually reflect where our heart is. What's going on? What is ruling and captivating our emotions, our, our lives? Paul Tripp says it like this. The root system of the love of money runs deeper and wider through the soil of the human heart than we tend to think. Friends, a bigger, better budget won't help me if something else rules my heart other than God. Good financial principles won't help me in the places where I am more committed to building my kingdom than God's kingdom. With, with tithes and offerings, God is in his grace prying our hearts away from securities that are not him. Through this giving process, he is creating in us an open-handed life. I want you to hear from where this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then in verse 11 of that chapter, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. God is doing a work, even in our generosity, that is conforming us more and more into the image of his son. We, this is our posture when we still are battling with the flesh. We have such anxious hearts and misplaced desires. C.S. Lewis put it so well. The problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We want fleeting worldly pleasures, but God doesn't say to us, Shame on you for wanting things. He says, I can give you something much better and more lasting than all the world's 
trivial trinkets. That's really what's happening in the last two verses of this, of this passage. How is it that we can honor our marriage and not look outside for some further satisfaction? How is it that we cannot have this love for money that consumes us and it is our aim and passion in this life to get more? How is that possible? There is the answer given here, this motive, and it is God who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some kind of pull that passage, that, that one sentence out of context and apply it in other ways that really misses what God is trying to help us in the day-to-day grind of this life. In all the different realms in which we we interact on, on a daily basis. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are struggling to be content and you are tempted to be consumed by things, so much so that you neglect your love for others, there is actually much hope and motivation right here. There is a God, the God, saying something to us this very day. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, when you think about the benefits of the gospel, at least when I do, start to think, okay, justification, sanctification, union with Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, and we rejoice in the benefits of the gospel, another great benefit of the gospel is the presence of God. No more powerful incentive for obedience, no more comforting truth in the midst of unimaginable hardship and temptation than the promise of the presence of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We find this simple but life-changing, fear-defeating truth Everywhere in scripture, if you are mine, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one who has said this. The glorious truth that God's promises, the promise to be with us is found in whatever dark valley you may pass through. He promises to be with you in the mundane things of the kitchen or the bedroom He promises to be with you when you are doing your budget and there is no money left at the end of the month to pay all the bills. He is with you when you are watching TV or playing video games. He is with you, promises to be with you in the car while you're driving or when you're riding your motorcycle. He promises to be with you on the the athletic field or in the gym. He is with you when you're having difficulty at work. He is with you when you're having difficulty in your marriage or with your children. He promises to be with you in the hospital when you are undergoing surgery. He is with you when you are at work, at play, while you sleep, whether you stand, sit, or run. There's a twofold thing happening here. There is much comfort to know that you are never alone. You will never be forsaken. And there is a resting and a freeing that happens through that truth weighing in on your your life, on your heart, and on your mind. It it radically will change 
how you live out verses one through six. And then if you're sitting here going, man, I am struggling. If I'm looking at this list and how I have really failed in my relationships, in the marriage, with money, the presence of God also is that motivation, that fuel for obedience. Many of us fall prey to the the deceitfulness of sin, thinking if I do it in a place or in a way that no one else knows about, I'm I'm doing okay. It's, It's a hidden sin. It's in the dark. The presence of God, He is with you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, He's there. This also has that other aspect of of blessing, of God's grace. If you are struggling to battle sin, he is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I said he is the one who says something and then we confidently respond. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I wonder sometimes if you've ever looked at a passage of Scripture and actually owned it for yourself. You know, we read about maybe someone else's experience in the Bible. Oh, maybe it's being written to this audience. It doesn't really apply to me. Brothers and sisters, God has said something to us. It was first recorded. The author is coming from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. God telling Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is being said to us. And we can confidently say this response in any circumstance, hardship of our life. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The psalmist in 118 is the one who, surrounded by enemies, his confidence comes from the knowledge of him who is able to hold him fast. The Lord is my helper implies a willing readiness on God's part to afford us all needed, all things needed for support and aid. So when we confidently say this, Brothers and sisters, know what you're saying. The one who is able actually will. The one who has said he will never leave you nor forsake you, that one who is, who is amazing and all-powerful and all-knowing, he is the one who will provide for you in whatever you're experiencing. Now, some may hear this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And ask the question, how do I really know that he will never leave me nor forsake me? God would reply to that question by pointing us to the cross. So in closing, I want you to think about this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That same word forsake is the word that came out of Jesus' mouth when he cried aloud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you ask that question, how can I know 
that he will not forsake me, God points to the cross and says, because I forsake my son, actually proves to you that I will never forsake you who are, who are in my son. His forsaking of the son was that, so that he could actually look at all of us and make this promise to us. Because Christ actually bore all that we deserve to bear, meaning the condemnation, the wrath of God, the judgment, now being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, we now stand justified, sanctified, adopted into God's family where we hear these words and we look to the cross and say, it's because he was forsaken that I can have confidence to know that I will never be forsaken. In his dying and suffering in your place, you and I are assured that God will never forsake us. He will always be with us, that you will never endure the separation that the Son endured on the cross on your behalf. You need to hear this if Christ is not your Savior, if you have not actually received him by faith, you don't have this promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Friend, you have much to fear. You do not have this helper. But there is an offer being made to all sinners who will hear this very day, Christ came to save sinners. He was forsaken on behalf of his own so that we never would be. And so believing upon him, repenting of your sins, actually allows you to receive the benefits of the gospel. The one benefit that's emphasized in this passage, the presence of God. This is what's being offered to sinners. Those in Christ, brothers and sisters, this should be of such encouragement. Those whom he forsakes not, he helps. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your glorious word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to you, to understand what it means to worship, to have our hearts laid bare and really admonished, rebuked, if what it's being uh, revealed, what's being revealed is that our hearts have, have been prone to wander, to, to worship other things, to covet other people or other things that do not belong to us. Father, all of this is good because it ushers us once again to the cross of Calvary, to be reminded of our hope and our stay, the promises, the joy that is ours in Christ, the confidence to know what you have said. You will never leave us nor forsake us and to be able to confidently respond and not just say the words that you are our helper, but actually apply that to our lives in the realm of marriage, in the realm of finances, in the realm of our heart 
running after things that will never satisfy. Father, tune our hearts, we pray this morning, to the one who is our satisfaction and joy. Where pleasures are found forevermore, Christ our King, our Lord, our Savior, we praise thee this morning. And for our friends here who are far from you, who are not experiencing the presence, the joy, the peace, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, may this be the day in your marvelous grace where you give them the eyes to behold the glory of the Son. Have eyes for the kingdom of God and run to the Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.